0: Okay, if you find a seat, we're gonna get started shortly. Starting a little early so I can do my introductory remarks with an official start time of 7.30. Take your dessert. My only request is you know, take, take drinks, take dessert, just when you're done, if you leave it under your chair, remember to take it and throw it in the garbage. And I'm putting Gideon Marcus in charge of watching everybody. So he's right back there.
1: He has to leave it.
0: No, he's going to be here till the very end now, looking for trash people. Okay. Well, welcome to the uh, closing event of our 18th annual CSP One Month Scholar Program. I hope you've enjoyed having Mark Dollinger with us for the month. You don't have to do that just because his in laws are here, but that's very nice of you. Uh, as you know from day one, we have dedicated this whole month. To Ofra and David Wilner, who are here. So, thank you again, Ofra and David, for supporting CSP and for being um, interested in adult Jewish education throughout your lives and supporting education. So, thank you both. Thank you. We are also, as I mentioned in our opening lecture, blazing it forward, honoring the memory of Blaise Bernstein this month with acts of kindness and educational engagement. Um, Today is officially the 18th unique program that we've offered over the month. And before I go there, I lost the Horvitz family. Where'd they go? Where's Carol and Paul? So Paul is right here. Carol is not here. But the Horvitz family, uh, their family created a program in Houston, Texas about eight years, about 26 years ago? 26 years ago to bring a scholar to their community in Houston for one month every year. And our program is very much based on their, not many communities in the whole United States do it. Houston does it and many of our scholars come out of their program. Um, And so on behalf of the Horvitz, um, on behalf of CSP, I want to thank the Horvitz family for what you guys did. And wish you many more years of scholars and programs in Houston. Um, Anyway, today is the 18th program. So I just want to ask, has anybody attended all 18 programs? Don't be shy. We have one person. You do not count, Mark, because, you know, we have like an open section right in the middle where you can see better, so not to make you all get up and, and out of your comfort zone, but you may want to move to that section. Just feel like there's like a, the prime seats are open. Okay, so we have one person that's in an 18. Has anybody attended 17. Do I have to check in on this? You sure? 17? Someone else told me they attended 18. That's it? One person 18, one person 17? No, no, this year. This year. Okay. Has anybody besides Steve Shulkoff attended 16 programs? I'm just trying to get a gauge of where we are here. 15? Faith says 15. Okay, so I have 115, 117, and 118. We'll remember that. After the program, do not run away, please, because we're going to do a few quick things. We have some special gifts for Mark. I think you'll enjoy seeing what they are. We also have gifts for those who attended the most programs, as well as we have um, CSP hat challenge winners. So for you guys from San Diego, see the CSP hat there? We've made special hats. We have different colors over the years. And we've challenged people to take their hats with them on their vacations to to exotic places around the world and send them back. And then we selected winners in different categories. We're going to announce the winners tonight. You guys are obviously not going to win tonight, but maybe if you travel well next year with your hat, who knows? Our first year, one of the winners was Pak Islamabad, Pakistan. So I'm looking for Saudi Arabia next year, Iran, Iraq, and Afghanistan, if anybody wants. If you do that, there will be special prizes. Ada, remind me I said that, please. You must come back. And the picture cannot be doctored. Okay, I'm not going to tell you what's coming out this next month. There's so many programs, and I've sent you emails. So read your emails February 5th, February 10th, February 13th, and February 26th, I believe, are programs in February. I did release an early email inviting people to come. Mark Michael Epstein is coming to town to do a program about the art in Polish synagogues on Friday, March 8th. And then on Sunday, March 10th, we're going on a private tour of the Getty Villa. Mark is an art historian from uh, the East Coast. And um, there's very limited space because we can only take 40 people into the Getty Villa and do two tours. So if you want to go, sign up before it's sold out. That one I cannot take more than the number that I've promised. I also want to thank all of you, the donors for CSP. As I've told uh, the Horvitzes and other people, we, uh, the programs you see here are funded by the people in the room. We do get money and I'm very thankful for a grant from the Jewish uh, Federation of Family Services and Jewish Community Foundation of Orange County. But that is about 10% of our budget. 90% comes from people who are interested in high level adult Jewish education and our core program is the one month cost. So I want to thank all of you and I want to thank all of you who are in our legacy circle to ensure our future. Oh gosh, what else did I want to say? other than remind you, do not leave after this, and remember to take your stuff under your chair when you do leave in the end. Let, join me in welcoming Professor Mark uh, Dollinger for final Orange County presentation tonight. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Uh, Wendy says to remind everybody, please turn off your cell phones.
1: (laughs) Passed. Present and Future, Deploring Our Understanding of History to Frame Contemporary American Jewish Life and Wonder About Its Future. Erev Tov, good evening and welcome to the closing lecture of the CSP January Scholar. Hold it, hold
0: it, hold it, hold it. I what? thought
1: that you were... Oh, wait, wait. If you've got something to say, say it into the mic, please. I
0: thought you were histo- a historian.
1: Uh, <laughs> I am.
0: This isn't a history lecture.
1: This is not a history lecture.
0: Weren't you trained as a scholar not to do this? That's correct. Why then are you violating a basic tenet of academic historians?
1: It's the end of the month. I'm heading home tomorrow, and I can say whatever I want tonight.
0: Okay, and you're tenured.
1: (laughs) And I'm tenured, thank you very much. And historian predicting the future our subject for the evening. Thank you, and thank you, Wendy. And just so you all know, that was set up ahead of time. <laughs> just, and and what I, I, I told Wendy that it was gonna be set up ahead of time. What, what I didn't tell her was that I've got a picture of her to put up here because Wendy is the reason I am here, because I came here about a year and a half ago and she called Ari and made some noise. So, so I want to, on the closing night, to thank you and your family and your new best friends with my wife and all of the rest of it. So, so that's great, thank you. Past, present, and future. So you have on your outlines uh, your historical question and I'm gonna put the historical question up here on the board as well. Oh wait, that's not the historical question. <coughs> Somehow, yet another CSP Hat Challenge has made it into the PowerPoint demonstration. But alas, this picture looks different than maybe the other ones you've seen in the last 25 days because, as I have been warning all of you, I have entered the CSP Hat Challenge. (laughs) Even though I know I can't be a winner, it doesn't matter. It's good just to be nominated, and I self-nominated, so... uh, So that is on Catalina Island. You all give give me a day off every Monday. So the family went to Catalina. We enjoyed ourselves. Um, Another Monday, we went to Disneyland. That's California Adventure. And I'm holding the red card there. It's a special job at Disneyland. I've never had it in any of my visits. Um, You get that card if they want to know how long it actually takes to wait in line and you hold the card, and then when you get to the front, you hand it in, and then they know how long you were waiting in line. So so there you go. And and then we went down to um, Oceanside, right? We went to San Diego County, and that was great too. It was only 87 mile an hour winds that night, so I held on (laughs) to my CSP cap a lot. All right, here's our question. What's the future of American Jewish history? All right. An oxymoron. American Jews tend to emulate the cultures of those around them. So I'm, I'm actually, some of this is going to be fun because, you know, it's tough enough to predict the past as an historian, so I will try to predict the future. That said, I'm going to take my career thesis and see what we can do to play with the thesis to imagine what the way things might be. So I argue that American, political, American Jewish political culture follows the dominant political culture of wherever and whenever the Jews are living. So as um, that's supposed to be as America changes, so too do the Jews. Historic moments then are those when American Jews lead the way, when they're not actually following. And I just want you to know that uh, I've Because it's a violation of the honor code of historians, I've never given this lecture before, so I wrote it for tonight. And probably I won't ever get invited to give it again, so this is a special one-time rendition. But I have to begin with a moment of personal reflection and thank you, which is, my daughter Rivie is here, and she came down, thank you, Riv. When she became bat mitzvah, we took her to Uganda because we wanted her to see that not all Jews look like her, because we visit the Abu Daya Jewish community, and we're fortunate to live in Marin County in the Bay Area. We wanted to know, know that not everyone in the world gets to live the lives that we get to live, and we thought that Uganda would deliver it. What we did not anticipate is seven days in Uganda transformed our lives forever, because we were so brought in and drawn into a community which would normally be as far away from us as you could imagine, Yet, and actually, they're celebrating their 100th anniversary this June, and we're going back again, and, and we will always go back to Uganda, right? That, like, we know that in our lives based upon the week. And as Marcy and I have been reflecting on our month here, that was what came to mind, that this has been, for us, a transformative experience. We have felt so drawn into your community, so appreciated um, that we even got the show tickets from our social committee. And we walked out, and like six of you were at the show, and we're all chatting <laughs> outside the show. And I said to Marcy, we're locals now, you know? So, so thank you, um, Wendy, uh, as well, for, for reconnecting us, Ari for, for hiring me, what, what you do and have done. I have not stopped telling everyone in Jewish education I see. And the only challenge is that there's no one else like you around in order to do more of that. Thank you. I'm bragging to everyone at home. I have my own social committee. Thank you. Rosella and Ada, thank you very much for sitting up here. Um, Okay, and for all of you. Okay, I'm hiding it, and we're not going to do this till you're not going to leave after because Ari has some stuff. And after Ari has, as you leave, I've hidden out there, I've covered it up, um, all seven levels of prizes are here. (laughs) And just to make sure you don't get confused, I have a guide sheet I will put out there. Here's how it works. You get one point for attending a lecture and one point for asking a question at the lecture. Maximum two points per lecture. And then um, for three points you get a pencil, for five points a pen, for 10 points a mechanical pencil, 15 points gets you a Crayola eraser, 20 points an ink stamp, and 25 points the 10 gigabyte memory hard drive pen. And I'll put these out here. You don't have to remember that. So those are there. (laughs) I have the regular pencils here, and those will be to inspire you one last time for tonight. Um, But I always keep a secret for the closing lecture Anyone celebrating birthday in the month of January? All right, so we won't do it now, but afterwards here is your multicultural, multicolored neon happy birthday pencil that says sameach, in Hebrew, happy birthday to you. All the January birthdays can grab one of those too. So that's great. Birthday, okay, Mike, where's Mike? Oh, Mike, hold on, you can't walk out now because I'm, I'm about to brag about you. Um, so Mike said to me, you know, I need 10 books not written about, uh, by you about American Jewish history that I need to read. And I know he will, because he's bought every book I've, I've written and he's already read one of them and told me about it. So thanks to Mike, uh, all of you, and in the future, I have my recommended readings, so I will put these out. So it's about 50 pages if you want one of those, you'll have them. And I also want, uh, oh, and if you want to buy any books, even though you all bought out two runs of my books, I'll have a sheet there and I'll mail them to you tomorrow from San Francisco. We have a, a challenge which you successfully achieved. If you could tell them quickly the story.
0: Okay, dog walking. So I'm walking my dogs, as I usually do on Saturdays and Sundays, and I always have a book in hand while I walk my dogs. And I walk into somebody coming the other way with their dog, and they say, what are you reading? And I say, it's something history. And they say, well, gee, you know, I love history. Matter of fact, I just went back to college, and I studied history. <clears throat> was nothing like what I studied in school. I said, well, that's because you studied in school <laughs> 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 studied,
1: disorder, graphic analysis anymore. And for those who may have missed it, I'll bring you in. There has been a month-long challenge to use the phrase philipietistic. <laughs> First, a round of applause. Yeah to use the phrase filiopietistic historiographic analysis in conversation, unprompted. And it is a hard one to do. We had two winners this month. Well done. They deserve a pen. Excellent. All right, and speaking of filiopietistic historiographic analysis, we'll start with historiography. And here's where it actually now is going to get academic and interesting. There is a historiography of the future of the past. <laughs> Which is to say, if you ever, if I, you know who I am now, but if you didn't know who I was, and we were at a social event, like a party together, and you're like trying to be nice to me, and you walk up, and this was especially true in my dating days, you know, before I met Marcy, and someone say, Well, what do you do for a living? And you smile and say, I'm an academic historian, which is a conversation killer for most young women, right? Because then there's a moment of tremendous awkwardness and they don't know what to say. And I know what's about to come out of their mouth, because it's what always comes out in that awkward social moment. Even today when I meet people and they say, you know, those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it. See, that's their way of showing that they connect with me as an historian. And just so you know, if you ever meet an academic historian, never say that, because what they're going to say to you is, that's interesting. I study World War II, (laughs) because if we learned enough in World War I, there would not have been a World War II in order to see that. And that's because the notion of those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it is rooted in one of the earliest historiographic schools among uh, historians, regardless of being a a Jewish or or US historian. And this is the progressive view of history. Probably most of us embrace this historiographic school without even realizing it. The idea is that throughout history, every generation is better than the one before it. Certainly in Jewish tradition and culture, we would like our kids to have it better than us. And we would like our grandkids to have it better than our kids. And we would like every generation to improve, however we want that to be defined, so that ultimately, we will get to utopia. We would achieve the, I mean, if we want to put it in Jewish terms, the Messiah or the Messianic era. And if we wanted to put it in sort of more political theory terms, we, we we would achieve utopia. Um, Sadly, as first-year grad students in history learn, history doesn't work that way at all. It is not a progressive historiographic school. What happens is we're moving in different directions all the time in every which way, and it's impossible to figure it out, And the field depends and demands that because every generation of graduate students has to try to understand it in a different historiographic way so that they can get published and get a job and the rest of it. We are less concerned with the progressive view of history. We are less concerned with the notion that we're moving to a better, more perfect place because we learned from the past. And we are interested in fundamentally understanding causality. Causality is a big historian's word. We need to find out what the cause of history is. And I'll give you, I'll give you a sample of 95% of my undergraduate papers in my career. This is, how it, this is, how, this is the, the level of the intellectual analysis. This happened. And then that happened. And then the other thing happened. And then finally, the last thing happened. The end. It's a five to seven page book report summary of whatever they learned in the reading, which proves they came to class, they did the reading, and they haven't thought for themselves. There's no critical analysis in giving a summary of what happened. What undergraduates at the university level need to do is understand causality and significance, which means they must credit someone or blame someone for having caused an historical event to occur. And the moment they come into office hours, because they got their C plus, a C you get for a book report and a plus you get for writing a really good book report. So they come in with a C. I said, that's what a C plus means. You did an outstanding job of writing a mediocre paper. Well done. You know." And then they want to push it into the B range where they have to have some kind of an argument. And I said, well, those five things happened. How did they happen? Why did they happen? What's the significance of them happening? And they're looking at me terror-filled face. Because never in their academic lives have they ever had to think about what the next step and the next level is. And that's actually the foundational level of what university um, learning is. History is not predetermined. When they get on the news and go, history proves, I'm like, focus. Tell me, please, what history proves, because I got to know, because it's my job. So, so I, I want to open with this notion of causality and significance. And, uh, So Ari, uh, you you know, your your brilliance continues because the leading scholar of the question of the history of the future from the past is Yehuda Kurtzer. And Yehuda's coming next month here, right?
0: I'm not bringing him. I'm just supporting him
1: coming. Ari, of course, is saying that there's one speaker who's come to Orange County that he didn't bring, and he's owning that. But I'm giving you credit anyway, because it's, it's, it's your night. So Yehuda is coming this month. He's he's giving he's at Temple Bethel of South Orange County, I, re- I recall. And Federation brought him. That's great. That's now on the podcast. Federation, thank you. And uh, Yehuda Kurtzer is now the president of Hartman North America. Uh, that job is pretty much the number one Jewish public intellectual in the United States. That's what that and he is, uh, and, uh, and 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 I'll tell you a little bit about him. Hoping that you're going to go and and hear him. He earned his PhD at Brown University, and after he he finished the PhD, Brandeis University, and we have parents who are Brandeis student here. Yay, my cousins, uh, and my wife is a graduate too. They and see yay Brandeis go judges. Okay, um, so. They had a prize, a $100,000 prize for the best idea on the future of American Jewish life. And, uh, and he actually entered his doctoral dissertation, which became his book. And I have it up here. It's called Shuva: the Future of the Jewish Past. He won the prize, which gave him a two-year postdoctoral fellow teaching and research fellowship at Brandeis University. And in the book, he argues about history and memory. Now, I've taught you the last month that what we remember in history and what actually happened in history is often different. And he acknowledges this. But he also says that there are ways in which memory and the invention of memory can help Jews form notions of identity in the future. So he is now inverting the historian's craft of the past and the Identity Project, as we call it, in order to reimagine new ways in which American Jewish identity can be constructed going forward. So if you want more information, read the book, ask Yehuda when he comes here um, next month. So then, oh, I don't even have a slide for this, because yesterday I'm listening to a podcast and it's perfect for tonight's lecture, so this afternoon I threw it in. There's a historian named um, David Trier, and he wrote a book called The Heartbreak of Wounded Knee. It's, um, you know this book, you heard of this? Yeah? Yeah, an All right, so good, he's getting publicity. Just apparently came out in the last week. Um, he says you can't have a good future with a bad past. And essentially, so much of the historical telling of native peoples is so depressing and so sad. I'll, I'll share a personal story. When I was at UCLA and in, in my, my PhD's in US history, I got like halfway through the program, realized I can get a PhD in US history from UCLA and never formally study America's indigenous peoples. And I thought, I, I, I can't go out there and teach if I haven't had it. So I went to, to Professor Melissa Meyer, sadly a blessed memory, and I said, I want to audit your undergraduate survey class in American Indian history so I can learn this. And she said, no. And I said, why not? She said, because you're going to TA it. And I said, no. I said, I knew this much about American Indian history. Then I saw Dances with Wolves, and now I know this much. I can't be a TA. Sadly, there are few graduate students even interested in TAing, so she said, go learn a lot and come be my TA. She didn't teach the second half of the survey from 1890 to the present because she said, what's the point? It's not American Indian history because it's such a brutal and brutalization of what happened to native peoples. And this new book that's out is 1890 to the present. So I'm thinking about Professor Meyer and 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 the author of this book is arguing that our understanding of, of, of our future is intimately linked to what we can capture or not capture from our past. My daughter, Rivia, is here. She was a major in positive psychology at Pitzer, and I think this is a lot of thinking that comes from positive psychology, which is if we choose to look into our past and reimagine bad events to find what redeeming qualities came from them, that can give us an imprint that we can then put towards our future to see what we can do. So um, I haven't read the book yet, but uh, it's on my list. This is Arthur Schlesinger Jr.'s book, The Cycles of American History. It was plagiarized from his father, Arthur Schlesinger Sr., but since it was a father and son, nobody has sued each other and they did it with permission. The notion here is that in U.S. history, the uh, political history, the pendulum swings back and forth from the left to the right about every 20 years. So. We had the Gilded Age, and I know different ones of you were at different lectures, so I'll just reference them as they come up. The Gilded Age, we talked about laissez-faire social Darwinism, which was a move to the right. And then the Progressive Era with Theodore Roosevelt moved it to the left. And then the 1920s came with immigration restriction, moved it to the right, FDR and the New Deal, the 1950s and anti-communism, the 1960s, the rise of Reagan, you know, and, and, and here the theory would be... Whatever's happening now, just wait because the pendulum is going to get so irritated with where it is now that it is going to move forcefully in the opposite direction. It's nice because the students like it because it's every 20 years, and, and, and it, it maps pretty well American uh, history. It's problematic because it's not actually historical uh, because you can't actually. Causality just doesn't work like an imaginary pendulum going back and forth, but, uh, but he likes it. So now I would like to, to give you um, Professor Mark Dollinger's view. Do you know who that is? That's Professor Mark Dollinger, M-A-R-C, just retired from Indiana University, specialist in the business of Japan. We sent an email back and forth when we realized we're both Professor Mark Dollinger because it's a pretty unusual name to have. And um, good job, Ari, because I am waiting for the first time in my career for someone to Google me and for me to walk up and get introduced with his bio. So (laughs) um, that I put up because one of the great things about the month here is I got on the cover of the magazine, so all my friends are excited, and me too, and my family's here, so that's great. So, um, So here's my question about how the American Jewish past predicts the future. It's a rhetorical question. What's the difference between social history and sociology? I don't really want an answer now, because i got to plow through. I will tell you in grad school, if you look at the back of a paperback book, it often tells you like history, or or women's studies, or black studies, or whatever it is. Like half my book said, said social history, and half my book said sociology but I was in a history department. So I started um, walking around door to door to every UCLA history professor to say, what's the difference between these two books? Why does one say social history and one say sociology? And I have to tell you, nobody at UCLA gave me a good answer that I could understand, because I don't think they ever thought about that question until I sat with my doctoral advisor, Regina Moran Sanchez, uh, now at the University of Michigan, and she looked at me, and when I said, what's the difference between social history and sociology, she said, you need a dictionary to understand sociology. Which, if you're a sociologist, you would have just laughed, because they use polysyllabic words uh, in what we call the language of exclusion. Because when, when sociologists get together and having conversation, if you're not a sociologist, good luck. You should start your own conversation on the side. And, uh, and with that, I understood at least at the most basic level, what the difference was. Then I learned for real, and now I actually um, lecture all my undergrads on this in in the first year US history survey, because it really gets at the heart of our question for tonight. An academic historian's job is to capture the past as best as we can, so that when you read the book, even when you're walking the dog and somebody's seeing you holding the book, that you should be transported to a time and a place different from your own. That's it. And that's why Wendy and I had some fun at the beginning, saying we're not supposed to be predicting the future. Social science, of which sociology is. If you were a major in college and your major ended with ology, Ology means the study of. So sociology is the study of social groups. Psychology, the study of the mind. Uh, anthropology, the study of people. Um, these are called social scientific disciplines. The purpose of social science is to apply the scientific method, if you're a biology or chemistry major, you know the real scientists in the room, okay, with all due respect, the social scientists want to borrow from you the notion that science is a repeatable and predictable pattern of behavior. So that if you're a chemist and you mix two chemicals, you need to know that, that the same reaction will occur every time. Otherwise, you screwed up the experiment. But you're going to get it right. And that's how you're going to you know, cure disease. A political scientist is going to go to graduate school to study politics. But they're not studying politics like a political historian would just to understand the past. They want to apply the scientific method to political history. And let's just take a good poli sci field, which is war. If you're a poli-sci grad student and your dissertation is on war, you are going to study wars in history to understand how and why governments declare war on someone else. So that when you graduate, government will hire you for a job and you will walk into the office of the Defense Department and say, oh, no, I can't believe you're doing this. I studied this in grad school. You're going to go to war if you do this. You need to do this instead and there will be peace. And so a political scientist wants to change the future. So this lecture is actually right in the heart of social science. And there are historians who are social scientists. Many of you, I'm sure, have MBAs. A master of business administration. My father-in-law is here, he's got one from UCLA. And the MBA studies for two years really screwed up businesses that are doing it all wrong. And then they learn from a scientific perspective how to organize the org chart or whatever you all do in business to make money. And then you get a job and you go into a big corporation and you look around and you go, oh, man, I got to bring in my, my textbook from MBA school here. because." And then you're, of course, going to switch it all around. They're going to make a lot of money and you'll be great. Um, Masters of Social Work, if anyone does, has MSW, well, then you, then you meet with screwed up families. Because you spent two years studying how families get screwed up and how you could scientifically make them better, and you talk to them, and, and then their families are better, and, and everybody's happy. Everyone, does this sound really nice? Until you are a, a graduate student in history, and there is a, uh, a political history dissertation support group meeting on the fifth floor of Bunch Hall at UCLA. And you've been invited, because it's always good when you're writing your dissertation to be in a PhD support group. And I go to the PhD support group. And they got political scientists there. And they got historians there. And the political scientist starts talking about his dissertation. And it is completely out of historical bounds in every way. He's just freaking making things up (laughs) and putting it into a dissertation. So I object. Vehemently, I object that you cannot root a dissertation on a falsified sense of history. And he said to me, ah, but I am historic." Ooh, what a fancy word, ahistoric. <laughs> it means he doesn't care about history. I ended my uh, tenure in the uh, poli side dissertation group, because I was not going to do that. I formed my own dissertation group um, called Future Intellectuals Needing Inspiration in Social History. It's an acronym. It means finish. <laughs> Thank you. You know, because that's the job when you get to grad school, finish. And the goal of the dissertation group was not to exist anymore. <laughs> yeah. So now, so that's the theory. So now, what I want to do is I want to take the theories of, uh, of the historiography of the American Jewish past to the future. And now, let's apply it to a lot of the themes we've talked about over the month. And we're going to do a past, present, future uh, to see how it goes. So we're going to do it politics. I got the revolution going up there. Um, And for those who haven't been around for some of the lectures, the historiography of the American Jewish past began with the notion that all Jews supported the civil rights movement, at least when we did that. That would be the filio-pietistic school we opened with. That northern Jews supported it. That southern Jews did not. um, That uh, northern and southern Jews were aligned um, in this. And, uh, and, and then we get to the present. And oh, actually, not, not to the present there. That's going to be the future. I tried to complicate your narratives to say, remember the Y? We had a Y that everyone got along. And then we did an X that says we're not getting along. And some of you saw the Z, which is we're actually running a parallel path. And as we sit here today, um, and I guess the good, bad news for me is, is I, I just the Black Power book that m- many of you have um, is, is sitting right in the Black Lives Matter movement. And the rise of Black Lives Matter is a reflection on the American Jewish past, at least with social justice and politics. Many white Jews are alienated by Black Lives Matter, generally many specifically because there's an anti-Zionist statement in the platform of Black Lives Matter. So if we wanted to take the next historiographic generation beyond what we studied about here, the question now is, as a primary source, how would you take the Black Lives Matter platform, how would you take the experience of white American Jews today, and then figure it out? In the last two weeks, the Women's March, and the leadership of the Women's March association with Louis Farrakhan, has brought yet another moment like the Black Lives Matter platform, with many Jewish women um, refusing to march, many Jewish women marching um, with under duress and concern, and then many Jewish women figuring out ways to navigate how it is you fight for something you believe in, in this case, women's rights, against the fact that you're also a Jew, and the leadership of this movement is aligning itself with a man who is a clear anti-Semite. Um, and here we get into liminality, which we talked about in a few of the lectures. That is, that Jews are both white and non-white simultaneously, that Jews are powerful, and Jews are victims in this country simultaneously. And at this moment, it's all happening together, right? With, uh, oh, I was going to say right and left-wing anti-Semitism, but I'm going to go deep into anti-Semitism in a moment. So, as we sit here, how do we in the future unravel what the sociologists call, the anthropologists call liminality, the idea that Jews are occupying multiple places at the same time? Um, And I believe that the future is actually going to be among Jews of color. Uh, And this is a picture of Ilana Kaufman, who was the inspiration uh, for the epilogue of my book on black power. Ilana's coming? Oh, fantastic. Right All right, That's, I didn't even know that. That's great. Um, so, so this is actually, this is, this is your preview for, for coming. All right, so I, I will introduce Ilana to you now. Um, the, the demographics now say that 20% of American Jews self-identify as ethnically diverse. Um, and they get to define what ethnically diverse means. I will tell you, it's largely black, brown, Sephardic Mizrahi uh... persian probably you know those are probably captures most of that ten percent of american jews identify as black or brown as latino or african american Um, one thing Ilana is doing right now is um, she just created herself and is the jews of color field building initiative so she got funding from three or four of the country's largest jewish foundations so that she can give money out to jews of color around the country to develop Jews of color into leaders in the organized Jewish community, spaces where they have not felt comfortable in the past, frankly, due to a lot of white Jewish racism that's going on and a lot of skepticism about what it's like when a Jew of color walks into a room like this. So, um, so Ilana um, gave an Eli talk, so ahead of her visit next year. Eli talk is TED talk for Jews. So if you type in Ilana Kaufman Eli talk, you will see it. Uh, it's got about 15,000 hits the last time I checked it. And, uh, and what I love about Ilana is she completely undermines my entire thesis for this month. And I believe that she is the future of the question of Black-Jewish relations. So if you haven't yet gotten to the epilogue, and Mike, I know you have, um, I'm having lunch with Ilana because we get together a couple times a year mostly just to talk about whatever we want to talk about. And we end up talking about the 50th anniversary of the Selma March with Dr. King and Heschel but now 200 white reform rabbis are gonna march from the reform movement are gonna march with the NAACP between Selma and DC and fight for voting rights, which is a great thing to do, except Alana points out. What about the Facebook pictures? Oh, the Facebook pictures. We know what that's going to be. White rabbi, Torah, black NAACP member, smiling. And the rabbis are going to come back and think their Rabbi Heschel and give sermons in the synagogue about how great they are because they just marched from Selma without any idea that what they just did was not march from Selma like Heschel did and like King did because they were, they were risking their lives when they did that. And I had a nice quote from, from Rabbi Chuck Briskin, who used to be Temple Bethel San Pedro. Now he's in Pennsylvania. He said, they had the police beat them up. We had a police escort. They were, they were worried um, about their physical safety. I was worried that my Boston Red Sox cap wouldn't protect my head from the harsh August sun. They were worried they'd lose their jobs. I was worried a flight delay back to LA would make me late for my Wednesday night board meeting. So Ilana said, where would I be in that picture? Right, now that's a literal question, because as a Jew of color, she was not a part of the process of organizing that even so as to sit with white rabbis and say, let, let me talk to you a little bit about what it's like to be black and Jewish. That would be helpful. But I wrote my whole book on black Jewish relations, assuming that that was a relationship. And it's, it's not a well. maybe it's an internal relationship for the Jews of color in this country. Their entire understanding of Jewishness and Americanness and Black Lives Matter and the Women's March and everything that we're talking about now is fundamentally different. I have spent the month asking about the Jewish past. How much of our Jewishness is really Americanness? And Alana asks us, how much of our Jewishness is really whiteness? And that is a, a challenging place for white Ashkenazi Jews to go, and, um, and she is, uh, she's, she's pushing it. So um, I just want to offer you all a special invitation because tomorrow, Marcy and I drive up to Northern California. Tuesday, we inhale, exhale, and repack, because Wednesday, we're on a flight to New York City, because Thursday afternoon, I'll actually be with Yehuda Kurtzer at Hartman to give a book talk. But Thursday night, Ilana and I are going to be together at the Center for Jewish History. We are together going to present the Black Power (coughs) book. And then we're going to have a panel of Jews of color, political activists, and scholars who perhaps are going to do the future of the American Jewish past there as they try to understand the implications for what Ilana and I are each saying together and apart against what's happening now? I don't actually think you'll come to New York, but if you do, you're invited. All right, so, all right. Uh, being streamed, that's a great question. I don't know. It's the American Jewish Historical Society? I don't know. <laughs> they did not tell me if they're, if they're streaming it. Um, so now let's look at Zionism. Um, the past. We learned over the last month that um, you American Jews in the 19th century, were many of them were anti-Zionist. We learned that the generation that was around in 1948, including our honorees who were there on the ground wherever they're sitting. There we are, um, that That if you experience that, you never forget it. And it's part of your identity and your consciousness and your being and your essence. And the next generation that saw the victory in the Six-Day War and the reunification of Jerusalem and got to go to Israel themselves and pray at the Western Wall, that is something that you never forget. And now, the present. We have now what I call the intifada generation. The intifada is the Palestinian uprising. Now, I spent a year in Israel between 86 and 87. The first intifada was the fall of 87, I don't think it's related, but if you go from 87 till now, and, and the, how quickly that time passed, first of all, and second of all, I don't have a single undergraduate, right, that knows anything personally about 48 or 67, and all of them have been raised in a world and in an Israel and a Zionism that has been defined by the Intifadas. So. This brings us to what I've talked in a, a bunch of lectures about intersectionality. And um, Rachel is not here because she had to go to Rachel's parents. Oh, there you are. Okay. I know because I know I'm getting podcast and recorded here. I know she had to go back to UCLA tonight, but it's OK because she will hear this. She is working on an undergraduate thesis on intersectionality. And we got a chance to chat morning. Um, th- this morning. This is the question for right now. And I'm, and I'm excited that Rachel is, is, is taking this. Uh, This inverts previous generations' experience of Zionism. Young Jews today must choose between, at least this is the way it's characterized, their love of Israel and their support for justice. However unfair one thinks that is or how wrong that is, I will tell you generationally that's the question that's happening on college campuses. And the undergraduates are now having to figure out, with their experience of what Israel has been or is, or at least perceived as, how they're going to reconcile that. By the way, this, I think, was the, the great brainchild of birthright, because birthright is what's called the $100 million idea. Um, there's a theory that there, there, there is $100 million of Jewish philanthropic money in the country for the, for the big idea, if the big idea is big enough and visionary enough. If an entire generation from 48 and 67 no longer exists now, what can be done generationally? And the notion is free trip to Israel for 10 days, immerse them, give them a personal connection, and then we now could have the birthright generation. And it's also interesting that much of the political activism is going against birthright um, because they're now having protests on birthright because they don't think birthright is doing enough to show Palestinian perspectives. One could argue that's a trailing indicator of success. right? That birthright is achieving its goal of strengthening Zionism among a generation that didn't have it, if indeed um, this this kind of uh, critique is coming. So the fundamental challenge that we have today is nationalism versus pluralism. Trump and Bibi are nationalists. In the American Jewish community, Orthodox tend to have more nationalists. Jewish Republicans tend to be more nationalists. Immigrants and their children from the former Soviet Union tend to be more nationalist. And when one has a nationalist proclivity, one tends to move uh, to the political right. Outside of that group, which is about 80% of American Jews, are liberals. They're pluralist. They're intergroup. They're interfaith. They're about holding hands, singing a song, getting a t-shirt made up. Won't it be great? So the first challenge we have today is we are split along strong ideological lines um, and and looking to the future. And now this is just my prediction. I think the generational divide will increase. I think it's going to get worse um, as more and more years go by. And here's where I think the future is going to sit in the most discomfortable way. Jewish anti-Zionism as a litmus test to belong in the organized Jewish community, which is to say many Jewish organizations as a policy will not admit anti-Zionist Jews, Jewish organizations will not platform anti-Zionist Jews, will not give the opportunity to teach a course on Jewish anti-Zionism for the purpose of turning Jews into anti-Zionists because they consider that, that an offense to what it is to be Jewish. Just, just this past week, the JCRC in Boston, um, I think it reaffirmed an existing policy that it could not have an anti-Zionist group in its umbrella. And the Jewish Voice for Peace officially proclaimed themselves anti-Zionist this last week. And once they did that, the JCRC said, OK, you know, you're out. And and now, if you combine that with the generational side, we could be looking in the years ahead to a greater divide over the question of Jewish anti-Zionism. What this is going to do in the future is make leftist progressive, probably young Jews, pick between their Zionism and their leftism. Now in 67, after the Six-Day War, this is when this this question first came, Most of the Jewish leftists became what's called progressive Zionists, which is to say, they're not leaving Zionism, but as people of the left, they understand what they call the occupation. And therefore, they will be anti-occupation, and they will be pro-Israel and pro-Zionist. There was a group in that period called the New Jewish Agenda. I don't know if there's people here who remember it. Every generation of young sort of leftist Jews has it. The new one is called J Street. And what J Street is doing now is trying to capture the progressive Zionists. It's trying to locate itself to say, you can be interested in this case in Palestinian human rights and you can still be a Zionist. And you can dive in as strong as you are in Zionism as you are for social justice that you don't have to pick. So if you reject that today or in the future, you will join Jewish Voice for Peace because they used to call themselves Zionist ambivalent. But last week, they're not ambivalent. Now they're anti-Zionist. Um, and in 67 in Berkeley, after the Six-Day War, when that first generation had the choice, some of them joined the radical Jewish Zionist Union. That's how they, they did. And the other one sponsored Anti-Israel Day. And Hillel actually sponsored it, because they all used to be in Hillel. Then Hillel said, nope, you've gone too far, you're out. And, and I think we're going to see that again. In the future, we're going to have a challenge on whether or not the word "progressive Zionism" is an oxymoron. Is there such thing as a Zionist as a progressive who's also a Zionist? Um, many young leftist Jews would like to be both social justice-minded and Jewish and nationalist, you know, in the Zionist sense. Um, I just got an email this morning, just so you know the lecture is as fresh as it can be from the new executive director of a wider bridge. A wider bridge is an LGBTQ advocacy group for the gay community in the US and in Israel. Sadly, two years ago at the National Creating Change Conference for the whole LGBTQ community in the country, um, they were welcoming some Israelis, you know, who are LGBT Israelis, to talk about what it's like in Israel, because the year before, some people had been stabbed by, by Haredi Jews in the gay rights march in Jerusalem. And, and there was a protest against even having Israeli gay Jews there because they were Zionists. And then there was a whole kerfuffle with, this, with this, org, this national organization. So what happened, I think it's two days ago now, the opening of the national conference, the keynote address, the speaker starts in the keynote address, and this anti-Zionist group comes up and begins chanting and protesting and shuts down the keynote address. And they went on for, I think, about 10 minutes. um, And then they left. And there was not a word said from the leadership of the conference that that was not what you do. And then after the conference was over, the expectation from a wider bridge and the Jewish LGBT groups is, you will now officially declare that 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 was anti-Israel, anti-Zionist, you could even say anti-Semitic, you get in that debate, but say something, and there hasn't been a single word said. So um, a wider bridge, and send me an email, or just check a wider bridge on the internet, they sent out a very strongly worded public letter to the organizers of the national conference to say, you know, how dare you remain silent? If this organization is supposed to fight for LGBT communities and, and you are now oppressing communities because they're Zionist here or they're Israeli. It's even worse. So I think, I think that's something that we have to look forward to. Um, on the anti-Semitism front, in American Jewish history, we learned that anti-Semitism eased in the 1950s. By 1960, it was no longer limiting the American Jews. Right now, of course, we know with the rise of white nationalism, we have anti-Semitism from the right. We have anti-Semitism from the left and the anti-Zionism. That's going on. And, uh, and now for the future. What does our country mean? What does it stand for? I think this is the fundamental cultural question of the current political situation. I was raised on the notion of e pluribus unum, the motto, from many, one. And What does that look like, I suppose, would be the deeper question as we look to the future. I have lectured this month about Jewish history being rooted in the rights of individuals. In the Enlightenment, in the Haskalah, in Hebrew, and classical liberal ideology. That means that Democrats and Republicans today all understood that every human being was endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among them were life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness from the Declaration of Independence. If that is going to be the root of what America is, and for about 80% of American Jews, they're going to go with this pluralistic uh, sense of individualism in the country, or are we going to be a strong nation state? Is nationalism going to um, become more influential and more important than pluralism? So um, America first which is the motto that, that, that we have now, and certainly in the 2016 campaign, was actually a motto that, that came from the 1920s and 30s. We've learned in the lectures, if you heard them, that in 1921 and 1924, the U.S. Congress passed anti-Semitic national origin quota laws against Jews and other immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe. And Charles Lindbergh, who was the most famous person on planet Earth because he flew solo across the Atlantic, goes on a nationwide barnstorming tour, mostly through the Midwest, where he is an anti-Semite through and through. And he is saying that the, uh, that the British FDR and the Jews are trying to get the United States involved in the European war. And he is stoking anti-Semitism everywhere he goes. And the name of that um, campaign was called America First. So when America First became uh, Trump's slogan, it immediately drew back to that. And it accurately represented the the 30% of strong core supporters he has, because that was the same uh, core supporters that Lindbergh had in the 20s and 30s. What's different now, of course, is that the American Jewish community is split and fundamentally split between the pluralistic ideas and the nationalist ideas. And as I mentioned before, the fact that this president has more Jews closer to him than any other US president is not lost upon those who are taking a more nationalist side. And the fact that a much larger percentage of Israelis are supportive of Trump than of American Jews because their framing of nationalism is, is much more akin um, to what nationalists here are saying. Jews looking to the future are caught in a vice. Liberal Jews will argue for pluralism to fight anti-Semitism from the right. Nationalist Jews will argue for a strong America and a strong Israel to fight anti-Semitism from the left. American Jews in this formulation can't win for losing. So my perspective on the future, strong democratic institutions, protection of minorities, however that's defined, and I'll go back to the joke I used in four or five lectures. Is there a proper blessing for the Tsar? Right? Which is to say that Jews need a benevolent government. And Jews that have been around benevolent governments tended to do well, and those that have not and haven't. And, uh, and just to let you know, if we're looking towards the future, it's my next book. The one that I'm supposed to have started this month, but I've been a little busy uh, getting all of these lectures started. Maybe next week I'll get started on it. The boring title right now is Campus Anti-Semitism, a Memoir. Um, um, I have a couple other ideas. From the left and the right, anti-Semitism in the college campus. Or a self-hating leftist Jew. That's what I was called by right-wing anti-Semites. The journey of a right-wing colonial imperialist. That's what I was called by left-wing anti-Semites. <laughs> And then my favorite one, which is probably too funny for such a serious book, Stuck in the Middle with Jews. (laughs) (laughs) So the liminality and the notion that Jews are sitting where the left and the right is both coming at them in different ways, and Jews are part of the both left and the right, has played out in my career beginning at Pasadena City College uh, and now at San Francisco State. So I want to kind of animate those specific experiences to bring out a lot of the the larger themes that we have. Black Jewish relations, the past. In the 50s, it was a Cold War liberal anti-communist. Consensus, in the US, Everyone gets along, they're getting along here. Jews reached across religious lines, across racial lines. America aspired to be a place where everybody could integrate. And certainly that it was really good if the commies were showing you know, racism in America to prove that democracy and capitalism aren't good and communism is better. We needed to solve our problems so that this, the communists you know, wouldn't use it against us. Today, are we X? you know, where the the groups are separate? Are we Z because we're on a parallel path? Identity politics and cultural nationalism, um, intersectional identities as well. What is the future? I think the future is segmented, which is to say that uh, I think your generational status will matter most in the next 20 years or so. Um, I think uh, uh, the grandparents' generation has experienced the history themselves, so they feel it. The parents' generation are caught in the middle, and the youth are really struggling. There is now a great op-ed by an African-American Jewish woman named Nyla Burton, and uh, I think it was in Forward. I, I only say that because she did quote me in it, which I appreciated. But what she, the article is about white Jews who brag about their involvement in the civil rights movement. So it's a gutsy op-ed to write. And it basically says, I don't like it when white Jewish people tell me how much they supported blacks in the civil rights movement. And then it unwinds how that past sense of a good thing that Jews did, when we look to the future of race relations, can actually make things much worse. Um, and she advises, and I've advised when you've asked me this month, it's really good for white Jews to, uh, to take second chair in social justice for a little bit, which means sit down and listen and learn. Don't lead. I think it's okay to share a story from Ilana, you know. But um, she took me out for lunch because she wanted to gather 100 Jewish agency executives from the San Francisco Bay Area for a full day of racial consciousness training. And because of my work, she wanted me, you know, to, to to talk, and I and I looked at her and I said, "Oh, this is so painful." I said, "You need to bring a middle-aged white man with a Ph.D. and to say what you already know is true, because you know this that coming from me, it's going to have more impact," it, which is ultimately what was happening, right? Because that's how it goes. And I said, "Of course." You just tell me what to do and when to do it, and I'll be there. And I went to the organizing meeting, you know, the only white person there, and I've learned enough to keep my mouth shut. And it was pretty good. They said, Mark, you're not the keynote. You're not opening. You're not closing. And you're not going to get one minute more than than a Jew of color. And I said, I get it, right, because that's what it is to not command the conversation and not to be the one who's in charge all the time. And I think for the future, in terms of race relations, in terms of the Jewish community in lots of different ways, I think that's where we're going to need to go. Judaism itself. In the past, it looked a lot like Christianity. And that is synagogue affiliation rates tend to mirror church affiliation rates. Where Christians join churches? Jews join synagogues. Highest synagogue affiliation rate in the country historically and today is in the Deep South, because that's the highest church affiliation rate. Because any of you from the Deep South? My mother-in-law, Irene Levine, is here from Jacksonville, Florida. What, what church do you pray in? I pray in the temple, because I go to a Jewish church. All right, That's fine, as long as you go into the church. If it's a Jewish church, that's no problem with that. Um, the lowest synagogue affiliation rate in the country is in the West, in California it's the lowest church affiliation rate as well. Um, we had classical reform in the 19th century. They rejected kashrut. They took away bar and bat mitzvah, put in confirmation instead, because that was a Christian thing. And um, they were anti-Zionist, of course, from the political right. The data today in the demographic survey, oh, by the way, when, when Ilana comes, so she is now in charge of the very first National Demographic Survey of Jews of Color, which will be a, an accurate social scientific count. And I know in the spring, because we're trying to go to D.C. together and to talk about the book and for her to do the big release on this thing, uh, it should be really fascinating to, to see how that goes. So, but the data we have now on uh, nationally uh, has the middle getting squeezed. Orthodoxy is growing as a denomination in this country. It's about 10% um, uh, and and getting bigger. The reform movement is growing and the conservative movement is shrinking. So the conservatives are getting squeezed out, which is painfully ironic because the idea of conservatism um, religiously was supposed to be growing bigger than either extreme because it was going to try to see if it could navigate both. There's a new category which is skyrocketing, just Jewish. What are you? Just Jewish. And then you you check that off. So the number of Jews who do not identify by religious denomination is becoming actually the largest denomination, is not mentioning a denomination at all. All right, so what's the future? Here's the joke answer. Whatever the churches do, right? And I'm serious, because as the churches are innovating across the country, the synagogues will follow. And there's some great partnerships between many of the mega pastors in the 10 or 20,000 member churches and rabbis from across the country who are trying to understand especially radical inclusion and welcoming. The idea that a synagogue is a place where the door is closed and you have to pull open the door and then walk in and then go to the office and then say, by that point, many of these mega churches, you've already lost. Basically, 24-7, they want eight people standing outside the door smiling and shaking your hand, greeting you, and walking you in. And they understand, from a marketing and public relations point of view, how to affect your soul in a way that you want to be in a place like that. The big question for the future is about organizations or ideas. Are Jewish organizations failing, or is Jewishness or Judaism failing? As synagogue affiliation rates drop, an mitzvah, all the bad data that you get, people are like, oh no, this is terrible. What's happening to American Jewish life? Um, My favorite prognosticator, Rabbi Noah Kushner, uh, who is the founder of The Kitchen, which is a synagogue community called The Kitchen, which is an important thing, because if you're in a Jewish house and you wanna be in the buzzing, you're gonna be in the kitchen, so you want people to imagine that. So Rabbi Rabbi Noah Kushner's theory was Judaism never fails because it's transformational, because it's Torah. And if you teach Torah to any Jewish person, they will be transformed. And in fact, if you teach Torah to any person who isn't Jewish but shows up at one of your events, they're going to be transformed too. So she decided that she was going to go to the southern part of San Francisco. San Francisco is like a totally secular city for Jews. The southern part of San Francisco is the most secular. She's going to look at the 20 and 30 somethings. These are the people that are never involved in anything. And she's going to deliver to them three things God, Torah, and Israel. And I laughed at her. And she didn't like that, you know? And then she honored me. She said, We're going to do this together. So I did the operational stuff, she did the, the vision stuff, and formed the kitchen, right? And she said, I don't want a single person who's a member of a congregation coming to me. Politically, you don't want to deal with that with all your rabbis. And she wants to prove that the problem isn't with Judaism. And she got started with the kitchen. They're in their eighth year now. And we went to Kol Nidre. And there were 2,000 people at Kol Nidre. And, uh, and, and uh, it, is, it is on fire what, what, what they are doing. And uh, so, if you ever get up to San Francisco, thekitchensf.org, or just reach out to me, and uh, and I'll get you there, so you can see how <laughs> we that goes. You bring okay. I wasn't sure if that was done yet, so I didn't want I'm to announce probably. that. Are you, you oh, going to bring Noah, Noah down? So that that would be great. And uh, I think I think that she's got the future figured out. Oh, by the way, I also want to say it's a lefty congregation politically, and unapologetically. If you don't want a rabbi speaking politics from the bimah, don't go to the kitchen, okay? Because she, she's read Torah. And I, I joke with her. I say, well, what about halakha? What about Jewish law? She's like, well, whose halakha are you talking about, right? And she knows her halakha, and she and she, goes, she will go at any other rabbi on the halakha, and then she will present it to this group, and they're walking out going, I have never heard of Judaism like that before. And then they're lit up, and then they bring their kids. So... Back in the day, actually, when I did my year course in Israel for winter break, uh, I went to Egypt. And uh, when you go to Egypt, you buy papyrus. And the best part of the papyrus was the 2,000-year guarantee that comes with it. And they said, if this fails any time in the next 2,000 years, you bring it right back to me, and I will fix it. So since I have been tasked with making predictions for the future, I would like to offer you the same 2,000 year guarantee. Maybe historians can predict the future, but to see if I'm correct, you're just gonna have to wait and see. Thank you very much.
0: Okay, so, Quite a lot to think about, um, you're leaving us with. I'm glad that we recorded so we can unpack it over the next month as we prepare for our next one-month scholar. Of course, we do have many scholars coming, and yes, many of the people that were mentioned are on our list for the next 12 months. I hope you will join us when they come to Orange County and hear from them directly. But I wanted to take a quick moment to uh, thank Mark with some gifts, and then we're going to hear about who's coming next year, and then we're going to do our CSP Hat Challenge, and then we've got lots of food left uh, on your way out. So uh, I have my box. I got to see what's in there for you, Mark. So I, I, didn't, I didn't even hide it in plain sight. Yeah, well. it's, right, it's right here. Um, so yeah, for, eight, for 18 years, I tried to get gifts, you know, for the scholar that most resembles uh, or is tied into things that the scholar has taught us. So uh, I'm trying to figure out the order of doing this. I guess the first thing is we spend a lot of time on American Jewish history. So for you, I have got a pair of American, uh, it's not Jewish, but I couldn't find American Jewish socks. I think that is, I did search on Google. If anybody would like to come up with socks that have American Jewish historical figures on them, I think that would be a good market. But I do have socks from America. You get to choose one pair.
1: Oh my goodness. Um, Okay, I'll take that one there. Okay. Thank you.
0: And yes, so we got that. I also, oh, I know, how much you like giving us pens? So we got you your own set, Oh wow! and it says Professor Mark Dollinger on the cover. And oh, then there's two pens in here, wow. and it has your name on them. Well, that's just Professor Dollinger. Thank you. Yeah. It does Thank smell you. like burnt wood. It smells like a campfire, so that's for right. <laughs> <nice. laughs> Also, um, tying in Jewish history, we spent a lot of time talking about the origins of American Jewish history and evolution and how the past still speaks to us today, and, and one character from our past that speaks to us is still Emma Lazarus, is, uh, sorry, is uh, Emma Lazarus. And she was a Sephardi Jew, so t- she ties into the earliest Jews came to America. But her poetry speaks to us today uh, in many ways. So um, there was, a, I guess, a compilation of her poems and, uh, called Songs of a Semite. Anybody heard of that book? It was, uh, I guess, published in 1882. 1887. So this is an exact copy of it. <laughs> that's come out, but that was too boring, so what I got you, <laughs> this is the actual, one of the original copies that came out in 1882, and uh, so I entrusted to you, which is better than the one we gave the year when I gave the page of the Incunambula to the professor who was shocked that I got him a page ripped out from a book from the 1500s, this is the whole book. So, please take care of it, and we trust it to you. Finally, tying into your theme of, of Judaism and liminality and black and Jewish relations, I got you black and white cookie <laughs> flown in from Williamsburg, New York. Oh wow! So, I've got one for you and one for Marcy for tonight, so you can celebrate in your, in your mansion together, and uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy those thank you. gifts. Thank you very much. Okay. You. But I wanted to, uh, yes, yeah, thank you. So those of you, uh, please come up here if you, were the, if you had attended 18, 17, and 16 lectures because I got you related gifts. So come and get them, and then I'm gonna give you stuff to bring back to David and Oprah, if that's okay. Everything that wasn't a duplicate, the maximum was 18. So we have one person who came to 18, one person who came to 17. OK, and Faith, you said 16? OK. So we have three up here. So you also get, you get some things that are very similar, but you don't get the original from 1882 print. So what I got each of them was this is actually is an exact copy of what I got for the professor. So you have to enjoy this and share this with people. Um, this, you, if you look in it and compare it to his thing, it's a, it's a, duplica- it's a duplication. Is this autograph by Emma? Uh, no. It's actually, I did look for autograph stuff from Emma Lazarus, but that was like a few thousand more than I wanted to spend. Okay, so we got some socks for you as well and for David and Ofra. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you each your black and white cookie. Okay. And we have to get a picture of you with the professor. We'll do it afterwards. And then I'm going to give you. Um, who will take this to David Oprah? Okay. And then I got your socks. I don't know, not know what elite performance compression socks are, but I think it's for Alita. So we've got to open. Again, these are America themed. Alita, I don't know which one you want. Do you want to choose one? Okay, you take traditional. Do you want one of these? Okay. And um, which do you guys like? We'll choose for you. Okay. So these two, one's for you. And one is for David. And we'll give that to Oprah. So I do want to congratulate you and thank you for attending so many programs. And I hope you learned lots. And stay over here for a photo afterwards. Okay. We're going to do the hat winners. Then you're going to find out who's coming next year. So hat winners. I've had some... Hat winners, what do we have for you? You know, I wish I could read, and I'll probably email you all, how many places our hats appeared this year? But at my count, and this is by hat pictures coming in last night at midnight from Hanoi, which was uh, Fran Gustin. We have hats that appeared in 68 places around the world. So here are some samples. We had Amsterdam, we have the Andes Mountains in Argentina, Banana Car in Irvine, that's the funny one that you have to see, Bath, England, Bletchley Park, England, the Blue Lagoon in Iceland, Borough Park, Brighton Beach, Bryce National Park, Buenos Aires, Cape Town. Um, We had Chevron, Israel, Colorado Springs, Gardens of the Gods, Coney Island, Crater Volcano National Park. That's just the seas. Ketchikan, Alaska, Mekong Delta, Vietnam, Monterey, Newport, Rhode Island, Normandy, France, Paris, France. Some of you went to Paris this summer. I know where you all went on vacation now. Sedona. We had Salzburg, Austria, Provence, Prague, Warsaw, Vienna, Victoria Falls, Vancouver, United Nations, Zion National Park, Yellowstone National Park. Anyway, it was very hard to pick winners. So I'm going to tell you that these were the, there were four areas in which we have winners. And um, the winners will actually get leftover stuff from here. <laughs> but also, I flew in some Bialis from um, Russ and Daughters. So you guys will get some too, actually, because I have, I have 24 Bialis, uh, 23, I tried one, <laughs> 23 Bialis. So hat winners will get Bialis flown in from New York, some black and white, and actually more importantly, they can choose over the next few weeks, and I will ship in, they can get babka from Bread's Bakery, and New York Brunch for six, some Essa Bagel, Bialis, which you already have, Yona Schimmel, six pack of knishes, Best of Junior's Cheesecake Sampler, Ultimate Seed and Meal uh, Artisanal Halva Gift Box, Pastrami or Corn Brief Sandwich Kit from Lieben's Kosher Deli in Riverdale. So this is serious stuff. When I said, take your hat around the world, this is good stuff. And we've sent some of the samplers to Dave and Ofer to celebrate, and then they ate them. They like them. You want more? Okay. So, I was, gonna, I was hoping to get some pictures up here. I will email you pictures. But the most creative photo category. Uh, you know, I had to, actually I had to update this because we had so many pictures come in the last minute. People, you drive, drive me crazy. Next year is going to be a cutoff. You cannot send me pictures at 2 o'clock in the morning. So in the most creative category, that some of the nominees were the Margolis and Schultz photo of them wearing tw- like six caps. We had um, uh, Barry and Joanne Hannock. it was a Zulu picture, so I don't know how this plays too well in the white Jewish relations, but it, if you go to South Africa, you can go to Zulu reproductions, and it was actually a Zulu group wearing the CSP hat in Africa. Um, I, do, I do like the picture of Sheldon Stern at Omaha Beach in Normandy, but our winners of this year's most creative photo were Mike, Ruben, and Lita Bryant, the sex museum in Amsterdam. Which picture I can't show you, because this is a family thing. But I'll email it to you, and then I'll probably get thrown out of my job. And then uh, my good friend Rabbi Charlie It's not because he's my good friend, but he had the most, one of the most spectacular pictures of him in the Blue Lagoon in Iceland. So if I call you, come up, and then you will all get your prize. The category most interesting location. We had uh, Cape Town, South Africa, um, which were Barry and Joe and Hanick. We had Patagonia, Argentina. Where's Norman and Barbara Rosen? Are you guys back? I keep getting pictures from you. I got like 10 pictures from you last night. I just got back. Okay. We had El Tarpeish, Santa Cruz Island, the Galapagos with Rochelle Ambersound. We had Wendy and Charlie Lupul in Skagway, Alaska on a glacier. It looked very cold. You know what? Actually, I blew something. Charlie is winning for... <sighs> Sorry. Yeah, actually... For the most creative, I have to call Steve Sholkova. Where's Steve? Steve took his picture without his shirt on during his cardiac stress test. So Steve is up here for that one. For the most interesting location, we have Charlie, as I mentioned, for the Blue Lagoon in Iceland. Okay. Most prolific USA, most prolific international. So we had many of you go on vacations and you took your hat everywhere you went. Uh, but some of you did, went above and beyond. So most prolific in the United States of America um, is Wendy Lupel for Alaska, Glacier Bay, Ketchikan, Skagway, and the Denver Glacier. And Charlie was with you in some of the photos, so come up. And Sheldon and Sue Stern, who went on a U.S. adventure and a European adventure, which they were nominated for, in which they went to Bryce, Zion, Grand Canyon, Sedona, Union, Illinois, and Galena, Illinois. So come up, you as well. And most prolific international, uh, we also have a tie. Um, we had people go, Watch well, yeah, the, what am I going to do here? We have, a, we have a three-way tie because we have, uh, actually no, it's two, we have Natalie Swit who went to all over Europe wearing her hat. She went to London, Prague, Salzburg, Austria, and she, went, she was in Paris and Madrid. So we got photos from all around Europe. And then we had Norman and Barbara Rosen who went above and beyond with their hat. And they spent time in, just recently in Argentina. They just got back and they were in Bariloche, Buenos Aires, Patagonia, Isla Victoria, Tigris, foothills of the Andes, and you just sent me one of uh, the falls, which will the the Iguazu Falls. And you went to Vietnam. So we got pictures from Mekong, Mekong Delta. We, uh, the Chuchi, the Chuchi Tunnels. I can't even pronounce where you guys went. Come up. So this is our group of CSP hat winners. Okay, so what you guys are gonna get is you're gonna get Bialy's to take home. You should probably toast them (laughs) (laughs) before you eat them. So I'll give them to you right after as we'll get a picture. And then um, you get to choose from the other stuff that I will mail you in the next week. You will get any box you want from that list, okay? And then I'll send you all some of the pictures so you can see what they did. Um, Do I have enough? I have just a few black and whites left so we'll figure out, okay then I'll figure it out. So you guys stand over here for one second. I'm going to invite the professor back. You're going to hear about who's coming next year. Then we're going to take some photographs, the, the ones who attend the most lectures on the CSB hat. The rest of you hang out, enjoy, and have dessert. So who is coming next year? you tell them or do no. I can tell
1: them. I can tell them? Oh, I am so excited about this. Uh, oh, no, I, I actually am. So, uh, so as Ari told you, um, it's going to be Israel, and this is a gorgeous image. I don't know who put that, they found that. Red. Oh, yeah, sorry. Hey, that's a gorgeous image, too. We don't mean that, but, you know. That's um, Basel, that, that, yeah. Israel. <laughs> that's Basel. Yeah. No, no, you have this. Over, overlooking, overlooking Jerusalem. I'm overlooking Jerusalem. And uh, so, so I, I thank you for the honor of getting to announce that next year's January scholar will be Professor Paul Lips. Uh, who is, has been a professor, right, I'm going I'm to give a little bit of a bio, can I give him a quick bio? One, he, he was raised in Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe, and he made Aliyah that turned out to be one day before the Six Day War of 1967. Uh, talk about your first week in Israel, right? It was literally that. And he has been a professor at Tel Aviv University for 40 years. He's taught at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He is most famous for teaching at the Hebrew Union College, the first year rabbinic students, which means pretty much any Reform rabbi in North America in the last 35 or 40 years had him as their professor of Israel studies. Um, he travels all around the world doing scholar-in-residence stuff, and... May all of us have friends in our lives that we don't get to see very much, but when we do see them every five or ten years, we pick up the conversation like it was just last week. So anytime we're in the same, you know, five hour flight from one another, we sit down. And um, four days before I arrived here, I was in Jerusalem. Uh, and Paul and I had one of our conversations without even knowing at that point that, that he would be here you know, as your next year scholar. And I'm actually trying to figure out when I can fly down so I can come and hear at least one of his talks. He's going to be fantastic. And I'm so excited for, for everyone. Did
0: you have the sample topics?
1: That you have? Oh, I didn't. No, I put up the sample topics. Sorry uh, about that. Do you want to I talk to about those? The sample
0: topics is when when C S P addresses an issue, it's not from a traditional perspective. So the topics that you will explore on Israel will be from every part of the of the country. Oh, so here are some sample. I want to give you an idea of some of the sample topics. So those of you who plan vacations, just don't go away next January because some of you, I don't know why, go away in February. It's a great time. Here here are some sample topics. This is in no order. It's just. Uh, um, a fledgling nationalism, Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank, Benjamin B.B. Netanyahu, Borders and Boundaries, Jerusalem in the 21st Century, Education in the Jewish State, A Question of Values, From Truman to Trump, The Fascinating and Complex relationship of America and Israel, Israel, a start-up nation, Israel and the Jewish world, Jewishness in the Jewish state, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam in the holy and the unholy city of Jerusalem, lessons and legacies, Israel's war of independence, maximalism and minimalism, the confusing question of the territories, the challenges of democracy, the Israeli case study, the Arab citizens of Israel, Israelis or Palestinians, the European Union and Israel living together and apart, the Israel defense forces and its impact on society, ultra-Orthodoxy and anti-Zionism, Wars of Swords and Wars of Words, How to to Have a Peace of Peace, Women in Israeli Society. That's just some of the topics we'll be exploring. But for those of you who are members, here are the class series we'll be having. We'll be be having three class series instead of two. One's called Creating a Nation, and the, the topics will be Holocaust Survivors Come Home, 1945 to 1962. The Yemenite Jews Returning Home. The third topic is the Beta Israel, Jews from Ethiopia. And the fourth topic is Russian-speaking immigrants, 1990 to to, to 2020. The the evening series is going to be called Politics and Politicians. We'll focus on four prime ministers. David Ben-Gurion, founder and builder. Golda Meir, a determined and committed Zionist. Menachem Begin, the peace treaty and a new Israel. Yitzhak Rabin, the price of peace. And then a special brown bag series, three-part series entitled, Israel's Neighbors, Nationalism and Religion in a Complex Region. Uh, one topic will be serious civil war and its implications, then we'll explore the politics of survival, Jordan, and then fundamentalism of the Shia, Iran and its regional allies. So I hope you will uh, join us for what I hope will be another challenging one-month scholar series. Thank you for coming out for our 18th year. Thank you for your support. Thank you for David, Oprah, and Wilner. And. Uh, have a great rest of the month of January you have seven uh, just a few days till we start February in our programs thanks